Lamentations chapter 3, beginning in verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust, perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter, let him be filled with reproach. For the Lord will not reject forever. If he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit, of these things the Lord does not approve. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Father, we uh, we come before You with open hearts this morning, open minds, Lord, souls ready to receive, spirits, Father, available to Your Holy Spirit to teach and to instruct and to guide us in the way. And Father, we deal with a a heavy subject yet again today, the subject of suffering. And we just ask, Lord, for insight and what Your divine purpose is. We pray that You give us faith for all these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. Last Sunday, we joined Jeremiah at what we call the summit of his suffering in Lamentations chapter 3. Jeremiah pulls back the curtain of his suffering and he reveals a surprise. The Lord is there. The Lord God is behind the suffering of the Jewish people, behind the suffering of Jeremiah. And we looked at that, the issue that that it's not, sometimes we we think it's always Satan behind suffering. Well, it's not. Sometimes we think it's our sin behind suffering. And while it can be, it's not always that there are times where it is absolutely the Lord not just allowing passively our suffering, but causing it. And we talked a little bit about why and considered that. Well, this morning I'd like to continue that conversation. Because the bottom line is God's character is at the heart of Lamentations. It's why this book, I believe, is in the Bible at all. That we would see and know a God of loving kindness, a God of compassion, a God of faithfulness. As Jeremiah said, a God who is my portion and a God who is my hope. And all this we talked about. This is the character, the nature of God. So last Sunday we talked about that. Last Monday, a terrifying F5 tornado set down in Newcastle, Oklahoma. It cut a swath two miles wide all the way through Moore, Oklahoma. You've seen, no doubt, the pictures on the news. It finally dissipated into the atmosphere. It left behind a wreckage and a carnage that has been compared to Hiroshima and the dropping of the H-bomb at the end of World War II. They say you cannot even imagine, unless you are actually on the ground, the devastation that was caused by this disastrous tornado. And that happened on Monday, and I thought, how interesting. We had just talked about suffering on Sunday and the nature of God, and then this thing hits, and of course, my email lit up. And the question that was paramount was, Rick, what do you think? 
Was this disastrous tornado the finger of God? You said, Pastor, that God causes suffering. Was this the hand of God on more Oklahoma? Jesus was asked a similar question. Luke chapter 13. Turn in your Bibles over to Luke 13. Keep your finger there in Lamentations 3. Luke 13, verse 1. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, to Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all will perish likewise. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus goes right for the throat of a Jewish belief that the righteous are treated well and the sinners die. The sinners perish. Therefore, these 18 people on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, they must have been sinners. That was the Jewish mentality. Those whose blood was mixed with the blood of of sacrifice by Pilate, had they done something to deserve that? They're asking the question of suffering. And do you see what Jesus does here? He doesn't answer the question. He refuses to lay blame. First they go after Pilate. Pilate mixed the blood with the sacrifices killing these people. What do you think about that? Oh, alright, let's get a little political perspective from Jesus. And he does not answer the question. He does not lay the blame. Not even on Pilate, who you know would be the man who sentenced Jesus. And then he's asked the question, well, yeah, or, or he actually brings up, what about the 18 who were killed when the tower fell? What about the 3,000 who were killed when the towers fell? What about those who lost their lives on Monday in Moore, Oklahoma? What about the suffering in the world? And Jesus does not answer the question with blame. He doesn't blame politically. He doesn't blame theologically. All Jesus does is say, repent. Turn to God. Jesus' response to the question of suffering was that simple. Repent. Jesus, this tragedy happened over here. Repent. Jesus, this awful thing is taking place in our nation. Turn to God. That's always Jesus' answer. Because because it brings us back to Him. The question is not, why do we suffer? The question is not, where do we lay the blame? The right question is always, who is God? Who is God? Because if we understand who is God, if we know something of the nature and the character of God, then all amount, all manner of human suffering finds its answer. Who is God? The question brings us back to Him. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, written back in 1961, he said this, My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has been shattered from time to time. It has to be. He shatters it Himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of His presence? Lewis is right on. We all have a notion of God. In fact, you brought one with you this morning. I did too. 
a concept of who God is, of how God functions, of what He does. But on occasion, God comes along and says, that is not divine, that's human, and I'm going to shatter your perspective of me. And most often, He shatters that perspective through suffering. He takes us into hard times. He literally drives us into pain. He causes it that we might see who God is. Now that's what we talked about last week. He Himself is the healing to all human suffering. He Himself is the answer to the illnesses. He Himself is the the healing. He is the cure to the disease. He's the balm for the wounds. He is. Not something He does or something He says, but who He is is the answer to our pain, to our sorrows. And we talked about that cure last week. Revealed in His nature as Jeremiah gives us that nature. You can go back to Lamentations 3. That nature of God that is so beautiful, so so right on. Listen to it one more time. Verse 22, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. See, that's where you begin. Before the suffering happens, we begin with the nature of God. I talked to a young man this morning after first hour who said, I lost my mom when I was nine years old. And my best friend died young. And he said, I haven't been in church since I was a kid. It's probably in his late 30s, early 40s now. So this is the second time I've been here. The first time was last week when you started talking about suffering. The second time was today as you continued to talk about suffering. And I just went, wow. See, that's what God does. That to me is, is immediate proof positive that we have a God whose nature is loving kindness. A God whose nature is compassion. The God who is faithful even when we are faithless. And that's His character. That's who He is. We start there. We have to. We start with His nature and then we consider all other things. The problem is we flip it upside down. As humans, we begin with all other things. All our problems, all our issues, all our pain. And then we look at God and say, see, there's got to be something wrong here. Instead of saying, now wait a minute, understand who He is. Look at who He is. This week I want to continue the conversation. I'd like to think about it a little more with you if we can. I want to look at the application of the revelation. Jeremiah gives us the revelation of his character, of his nature. What's the application of that? And I'm not talking about a mental exercise. What I want to know, and what Jeremiah provides wonderfully for us, is how do we apply that? Like you would apply Neosporin. Neosporin ointment. You know what Neosporin is? You guys have that in your house? I mean, it is standard in our house. It's great for all cuts, especially the stuff that has the little, um, you know, the pain deadening. I love that. Sometimes I'll just use that. No. I, I, <laughs> about a week and a half ago, I woke up and, I, and my lip was really, really sore. I looked in the mirror and I'm like, there's a bump there. And it's reddish and hurting. And I, I said, Cheryl, is this a cold sore look? And she goes, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> the kissing will cease now, you know. <laughs> and I looked and I thought, well, maybe it's not a cold sore. Maybe it's a spider bite. Which then got me to thinking, where'd the spider go? <laughs> and I went and brushed my teeth a second time. <laughs> 
I spent the whole week applying Neosporin to this thing. I figured, hey, I'll put some Neosporin on it today, through the day, go to bed tonight, it'll be gone in the morning. In the morning it was bigger. So I put more Neosporin all day long. The next morning it had about settled where it was. And then slowly, day by day, itty bitty amounts at a time, it began to recede. I was ready to go to the doctor. So I figured, you know, it was probably some kind of flesh-eating disease and I was going to come to church to preach next week, like, you know. It took time. It took time. It's finally gone, but it took some time. It was a little frustrating. But I was thinking about suffering and realizing that just because I recognize the Lord's loving kindness, His compassion, His faithfulness, just because I begin to apply that to my life does not mean the suffering instantly ceases. The suffering may continue. And that would be an answer for those who say, well, I know who God is. Why am I still suffering? You need to apply the cure. We need to apply the cure. How do we do that? The next 16 verses teach us how. Verse 25 of Lamentations 3. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. First method of application, silently wait. Silently wait. What that means in its simplest form is suffering without complaint. Sorrow without critique. It means stop trying so hard to figure out the pain and quiet yourself before the grace, the compassion, and the faithfulness of God. We've got some great examples of this in Scripture. We have Job, who, with, along with his friends, his three friends, spend 35, 36 chapters of that book complaining and debating and discussing and talking about his suffering. The whole thing is a treatise on the suffering of Job. Then Elihu comes along, the one who I think is probably spot on, the one who I think is... Holy Spirit sent, and Elihu begins to speak to Job about suffering as almost a precursor to the Lord. But after all of this debate, all this noisy conversation about suffering, all this consideration, which is so typical of us, God shows up. Job 38 verse 1 tells us, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Words without knowledge. That phrase in the Hebrew is literally, and you might want to jot this down, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Words without knowledge. That is so much. Think about this, of how we respond to suffering in our lives. We complain, we whine, we talk, and it's words without knowledge. We do not have the eternal perspective. And so we talk and talk and talk, and, uh, and Jeremiah would say, silently wait. One of the keys of application of the character of the Lord in suffering is simply to shut up. Stop talking. Job 38, 39, and 40 contains no less than 60 questions from the Lord. Questions with the purpose of silencing Job. Questions Job cannot answer. Who is this that darkens... Counsel by words without knowledge. I will question you, the Lord says, and you answer me. And he starts rattling off. Again, 60 different questions. Unanswerable interrogations. And Job is silenced. Why does God do that? Because until Job shuts up, his healing cannot begin. 
until Job gets silent before the Lord, he cannot even hear what the Lord is saying about how his healing can take place. C.S. Lewis, again, in A Grief Observed, said, The time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be, listen, just that time when God can't give it. Let me read that again, because I, I did a double take when I read those words. The time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just the time when God can't give it. Why? He goes on and says, You're like the drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. Perhaps your own reiterated cries deafen you to the voice you hoped to hear. And that is the issue so often in our suffering, in our, in our sorrow, we're, we're bleeding out these words like a bunch of sheep and we can't get answer and we're saying, Lord, why aren't you answering me? Lord, why don't you hear me? Lord, I wish you would say something, but we're doing all the talking. We are filling up all of the audible space. And Lewis doesn't imply that God won't give help as much as we don't receive it because we're taking up all the space. When we were in the studio recording the worship CD, there was a point I was talking to our sound engineer, David, and and I told him, on the last song in the CD, Our God Has Come, it starts with the drums kind of building up, and then it launches into the song. And I said, you know, after that eight-bar build-up, I'd love there to be like an explosion or a boom or something that really just sets the song on fire. And David said, if you do that, you're going to use up all the audible space. And he was right. And I thought about that. Something John and I talk a lot about in the worship team, about in worship, is sometimes the notes you don't play are as valuable as the notes you do play. Sometimes filling up every available space with noise is not the best idea, but often that's what we do when we suffer. We take up all the space. Silently wait. Silently wait. Isaiah 30 verse 15 says, The Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. Do you realize that even our prayers can get in the way of His mercies? I'm not saying don't pray. I'm just saying pray, but don't use so many words. Well, how do you do that? We're awfully good at praying with words. We're not real good at praying with our ears. Allowing the Holy Spirit to intercede for us with groans too deep for words. To actually get into the presence of the Lord. To meditate on His Word and to wait for an answer from Him silently. It's a key. Because our prayers can get in the way. Hezekiah, when he was king of Judah, you may recall the the situation the Assyrians were coming down. They had already wiped out northern Israel, and now they're coming down against southern Judah. And they have surrounded Jerusalem, 185,000 Assyrians ready to take out the city of Jerusalem. It's under siege. And we believe it's during that time that Hezekiah wrote Psalm 46. And Psalm 46 is a marvelous psalm to read through. It's a song of, of tremendous faith. It's a great expression of the faith of good king Hezekiah. But right in the middle of this song of certain deliverance, God interrupts. And he speaks these words you may have heard. Psalm 46.10 Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. But Lord, I'm singing a song of faith here. Shh. Be still and know that I'm God. Be still, Hezekiah. The words are coming out, but you're not listening. 
You're so busy expressing your faith verbally, you're not expressing your faith auditorily. You're not hearing me. And sometimes the best application of God's nature, recognizing His compassion, His grace, His faithfulness, comes in our silence, allowing that to be applied to our suffering. Not in our prayers, not in our songs, not in our encouragements, but in silence. One of my favorite old hymns is the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Keep silence, keep silence, keep silence before Him. So to apply this nature of God, the character of God, we begin with silently wait. Secondly, shoulder the weight. Shoulder the weight. Verse 27. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Shoulder the weight. Shoulder the weight. Bear the yoke. Wear the suffering. Accept the burden. Why? I mean, that sounds so contrary to human nature. Human nature that says, when I'm under a burden, I want to get free from it. When I have a struggle, I want to be relieved. When my marriage is not going the way I want it to go, I want out. That'll be easier. I want the quick fix. I want fast relief. And yet Jeremiah writes, let him sit alone and be silent. It's good for a man that he should bear the yoke. And specifically, he says, in his youth. In his youth. Teenagers, what in the world is he talking about? Bearing the yoke in your youth? Listen, shoulder the weight means endure. He's talking about endurance. Why in our youth? Because endurance learned early on benefits us later in life. The life that never figures that out, the person who doesn't get that, when they get hit by suffering later in life, and trust me, you all will. I'm no prophet of doom, but the reality is if you are a human being, you are going to suffer at some point in your life. It is unavoidable. It will happen. Guaranteed. Learn in your youth the endurance to bear up, to shoulder the weight when it comes. And yet, what are we teaching our kids in our Snapchat culture? Everything's fast. Everything's immediate. Everything's now. There's no waiting for anything. There's no reason to endure because we have the solutions for everything until suffering hits, until sorrow arrives. And then suddenly we can't get out. And we're stuck in this place. In a world where user data reveals that smartphone users, the average smartphone user, checks their smartphone 150 times every day. And we're shocked at that as we check to make sure that's true. I'm just going to double... 150, that's one time every six minutes we're popping up the smartphone to take a look. Technology has gotten a hold of us, gang, and it promises a lie. And the lie is things can be taken care of quickly. You can get over it fast. We'll move through this right away. The Bible comes along and in complete contradiction to that says, you're going to need endurance. You're going to need to learn how to persevere over time. The quick fix is a lie. It doesn't work. Shoulder the weight. 
Jeremiah says, younger people, shoulder the weight, strengthen the back, prepare the heart for endurance, apply the nature of God before the suffering hits, because it will. Hebrews 12, verse 1 says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, which in and of itself implies it takes time for faith to be developed. It takes time for endurance to grow and for a person to become strong in the Lord. Jesus, who for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But again, everything in our culture teaches us to get out from under the weight of suffering as quick as possible. First thing psychologists do when someone is in inpatient care is give them drugs. First thing. So that we can deal with the pain and get that aside so then we can help the person. While God is saying, you know what, it is through the pain that I help the person. There's a divine understanding we don't get as human beings. Endure. Bear up. Shoulder the weight. The Bible speaks volumes about endurance. James 1 verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.19, This finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And so the world says... Cast off suffering. The world says, find relief. The Lord says, stay with it just a little longer. Hang in there for another day. Why? Why, Lord? Because not only does shouldering the weight of suffering prepare the heart for healing, it brings me to the healer. It brings me to the one who then can take that weight and bear it for me. Matthew 11.28 Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And it strikes me that Jesus says Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me if you're suffering. Bring the heaviness. Bring the weight that you have been shouldering. Bring it to me. And you know what happens? When we hand it to Jesus suddenly there's this remarkable difference between what life is like when I try to shoulder that weight and what it's like when I come under His yoke, which is easy, and His burden, which is light. I believe that's the point of shouldering the weight in our youth. It brings us to Jesus early on. I I think I've said in here before, I remember as a kid kind of wishing I hadn't been raised going to church because then I could have a cool testimony, you know. (laughs) For years I wandered deep in sin and God grabbed and pulled, you know, as opposed to, I I just woke up in church. (laughs) Born in church. I spent my life in church. I took up the offering. My dad would make me give it back. I mean, I was a part of everything, you know, going on. And I am so thankful to the Lord that He raised me in that environment. And that He gave me that sense of His presence early on. Because as I've grown older and run into the wall of suffering from time to time, I'm already used to Him being there. And it's a good place to be. Now listen up, because the next one may may be a little hard for some of you men to swallow. Are you one of those who doesn't want anyone to know when you're suffering? You come into some hardship in your life and you go, well, you know, I 
I would call the prayer chain for someone else, but no, I, I'm just going to deal with this. I don't want to take up anybody's tribe, time. I don't want to be a burden. I think it may show some faithlessness anyway, or, or spiritual weakness, if I show up bowed down. So I'm going to bear up. I'm going to struggle through this. And so you don't pass along prayer needs, and you don't ask for help, and you suffer alone. Let me tell you, endurance does not mean arrogance. And I, I don't mean that offensively, but it is, it is arrogance to say, I will endure. Well, Rick, didn't you just say shoulder the weight? Yes, shoulder it right up to Jesus. It is arrogance to say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it. And so the prophet in this application process takes us to the very next thing. He says in verse 29, let him put his mouth in the dust. <laughs> A picture gang of humility. The humble state. Silently wait, shoulder the weight in the humble state. Verse number 3. He says in verse 29, let him put his mouth in the dust, perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. The humble state. Apply this to the suffering. Jeremiah is talking about the humble position of suffering. It's not, it's not the arrogant man with the megaphone. It is the humble man whose mouth is in the dust who even would give his cheek to the smiter. What's the matter with you? Suffering and groveling. Get up. Pull yourself up. Get over it. Slap. And Jeremiah says, just take it. Stay in that humble position. Well, Jeremiah, who does that? Who would stay in that place? Jesus. Jesus who said in Matthew 5.39, I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. That is absolute. Talk about countercultural. Don't resist the evil person. What? Don't fight back? Nope. You allow the reproach. You allow the smiting of the cheek. Jesus did. Mark 14.65 Some began to spit at Him, to blindfold Him, to beat Him with their fists, and to say, Prophesy. And the officers received Him with slaps in the face. And this is the same Jesus who not hours before said, Don't you think I could call 12 legions of angels if I wanted to right now? Boom, baby. And he doesn't. He just takes it. Why? Humility. Strange as it may sound, taking on the reproach of the world is receiving the application of the anointing of Jesus Christ. It's suffering as he suffered. It's accepting the position of suffering with humility. Rather than trying to get out from under it, it's saying, okay, Lord, if this is where I need to be, this is where I will be. And when the world reviles you for it, you respond differently. We talked about this at length Wednesday night. 1 Corinthians 4.12 says, When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. Who does that? Someone slanders you, is your first inclination to shoot off an email saying, Hey, forgive me for what I've done. Hey, I'm so sorry we're misunderstanding each other. Can we get together over coffee so I can apologize? I don't know what I did, but I'd like to find out so I can make it right. <laughs> no. No, typically when the slander comes my way, I'm like, whatever. Okay, fine. In typical Christian fashion, I'll cut you off. I, I won't be mean to you. I just won't even talk to you anymore. <laughs> I'll just be done with the relationship. Bye-bye. <laughs> 
And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You conciliate. You get slandered, you go find the slanderer and you do what you can to make it right. Paul says, as much as it's possible, be at peace with all men. You go find them and say, hey, how can we fix this, this situation? Now you might say, Rick, I don't know, how in the world could anybody do that? How can you bless when you're reviled and endure when you're persecuted and conciliate when you're slandered? Well, the key, I believe, is in the word conciliate, which the Greek word, you Bible students know, is parakaleo. It's the same word Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16. How can I conciliate when I've been slandered? You know what? In my flesh I can't, but in the Holy Spirit I can When the Spirit of God is upon me, I can make it right. The humble state. And don't forget, when you come to Jesus, you have the anointing, the ointment, if you will, of the Holy Spirit in your life, on your life, and upon your life. He is beside you to make this possible. Now, in the middle of all this application of the nature of the Lord into our lives, into our suffering, Jeremiah returns to the nature itself. He wants to make sure we haven't forgotten. Think about this. Why would anybody in their right mind silently wait in suffering or shoulder the weight of suffering or take suffering in this humble state? Paul says it this way, 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I can suffer. Why, Paul? Because I know the one I believe. Because I know the Lord. And so my suffering is inconsequential because I know Him. And knowing Him, I know He's doing something here. I don't know what. I don't get it. I don't know who to blame. I don't know how to complain. Don't need to. I know the Lord. Look at verse 31. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if He causes grief, note that, causes, if He causes grief, then He will have compassion according to His abundant Loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Okay, uh, I need a judgment call on this, Jeremiah. (laughs) This doesn't work. He does not, he says, afflict willingly. But you just spent the entire first half of Lamentations 3 talking about how God afflicted the people of Judah. And Pastor Rick, didn't you last week tell us God causes suffering? And here we read a contradiction. He does not afflict willingly, right? The word willingly in the Hebrew is leb. It's where we get our word lobe, and it means the heart. What Jeremiah just wrote, what he says, is God does not afflict from his heart. He does not afflict for affliction's sake. He is not hard-hearted. He is not mean-spirited. He is not sadistic. He doesn't inflict for the sake of affliction. But he does understand something about human suffering that we don't understand. You only get it with godly wisdom. And that is, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And that is God's goal. And we've, how many times have we covered this one? God is not so concerned with your temporal state as He is with your eternal state. He's not concerned with my temporary comfort. He's concerned about my eternal condition. For God, the issue is not, how you doing today? For God, the issue is, how are you doing eternally? Because today is a drop in the bucket. 
It's not even that. It's a drop in the ocean. It's a snap in the span of eternity. And God, in His grace, in His majesty, in His eternal perspective says, I know this is hard right now, but I've got to take you through the hard so that you will come to know Me, so that you will trust in Me, so that I can save you forever. Is that not worth some suffering today? In fact, is that not worth the worst human suffering imaginable if only for a time? Pope Francis declared this week that atheists are saved. That atheists go to heaven. He said in his own words, we'll see you there. Just do good stuff. And on the surface, it's, you know, like whatever. Deeper down, it denies the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. To say that all people are saved, no matter what, denies the sufferings of Jesus. Denies what He went through. God is in our lives trying to bring us to that point where we trust Him. And in trusting Him, are saved. But without that repentance, without that trust, without coming to the Lord, you ain't going anywhere heavenly. And I don't say that with any spite in my heart. That is the greatest tragedy of history is reject God and you will not go where He is. And so no, I'm sorry to tell you, the atheist is not saved. Unless the atheist becomes a believer by putting his trust, his faith in Jesus Christ. It amazes me that the infallible Pope could say something like that. (laughs) And apparently this morning the Vatican's already walking it back. But what he said is out there. God does not afflict willingly. But listen, He does afflict purposefully. He has a reason. This was such a common theme in the early church because they lived day in and day out with persecution. This was a daily occurrence. To find out that your uncle or your cousin or your kids or your wife were hanging up and dipped in wax and lit on fire in the courtyards of of Emperor Nero... That happened. That was common in the early church. And Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey, they preached the gospel to to several cities. Acts chapter 14 says they came to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch and they strengthened the souls of the disciples there and they encouraged them to continue in the faith. And then they said this, and listen, because I believe it absolutely applies to us right now, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, Rick, aren't we saved by grace? Absolutely. But once saved by grace, the path to the kingdom is a rough one. It's a difficult one. It is a painful one. Not joyless, but hard. Why? Because from an eternal perspective, God is doing amazing things that we will not understand until we get there that we cannot comprehend in the flesh, but only in the Spirit. He afflicts purposefully. Remember, this is the loving kindness, the faithfulness, the compassion. Same God. So when He afflicts, it comes from that place in His heart. Verse 34 tells us, and this is in contrast to what Judah had done, he doesn't 
crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit. Of these things, the Lord does not approve. So by contrast, the suffering that is caused by man is not approved by the Lord. But the suffering that comes from God is approved by the Lord. What's the difference? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And that's the difference. Human sorrow, human suffering, the human sin condition causes death. Godly sorrow brings about repentance to life everlasting. Verse 37. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? And Isaiah backs this up, actually said it prior. Isaiah 45.7, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things, says God. Amos chapter 3, verse 6, If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? So God owns this. He takes responsibility for it, and there's a word for that, sovereignty. That God is sovereign. Stuff doesn't slip by Him, unlike so many of our presidential administrations. Now, I'm, I'm not meaning to get political here, but i got to make a point about what's going on right now in the Obama administration. And if we were in the Bush administration, I would have made the same point about different things. Right now, there's the IRS scandal. There is the Benghazi scandal. There is the Department of Justice scandal. And all three of these scandals are spinning around and the Obama administration cannot get back on message because these keep coming up again and again and again. They're front and center in the news. And the question is, two possibilities really. Either our president knew about these scandals, which implies corruption, or he didn't know about them, which implies incompetence. Not a good place to be if you're the president. I'm either corrupt or I'm incompetent. Which one is it? You can say, well, you're just picking on Obama. No, no. We saw the same thing happen with Reagan in the 80s, in the Iran-Contra affair where they were saying he didn't know about it. But the second you say he didn't know about it, you say he's incompetent. He's president. He should know better. Did God know Monday's tornado was coming or did it just slip by him? Did he miss that one? Which angel do we have over Oklahoma? Who's got that covered? He totally knew it was coming. Nothing surprises God. Nothing happens that he is not aware of. Did he passively allow it? See, I just I reject that. We do not serve a passive God. Oh, oh, tornado, bummer. <laughs> did he know the bridge was going to collapse over the Skagit River? Of course he did. As a matter of fact, three cars went into the water, three people were fished out, all three are fine, and this happened at 7 p.m. on a Thursday. And has anybody in the news praised God over keeping people safe? Why didn't we read about a minivan full of a family going into the water? I mean, this is I-5, gang. Why didn't we read about dozens of cars in the water and death and cars hanging off the edge and, and, and despair? God knew about it. 
Praise God, He showed up. What I'm saying with all this is very simply, God is neither corrupt nor is He incompetent. He is God. He is sovereign. He knows what we don't know. He understands what we don't understand. He is bigger than we can possibly imagine. He is almighty. And remember where we began with all this. The question is not, why do we suffer, Lord? Or where can we put the blame? The right question is always, who is God? Because if I understand who God is, then all of my suffering becomes subservient to my faith in Him. If I understand that He's a God of love, if I get that He is a God of absolute grace and that He is 100% faithful, then whatever's happening in the suffering of my life, you know what? He is still God. He is still on the throne. And I'm going to trust Him. Whatever happens. Again, Lewis said, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered from time to time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Yeah, but he could have shot the tornado. Yeah, but he, but he could have filled that sinkhole in Florida. Yeah, but he could have alleviated my pain. And my friends, we need to put away the yeah buts. That'd be a good t-shirt. Put away the yeah buts. Stop yeah butting. Yeah butt out. I mean, however you want to use it. Because honestly, and the next verse tells us, we have no right to question the motives of Almighty God. Look at verse 39. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? I tell you what, as soon as you reach the apex of perfection, feel free to complain all you want. The moment you are absolute pureness, you can argue with God. Until then, shut up. Until then, no matter what you're suffering, you don't have the right. You are sinful flesh. He is perfect God. How how do we even come up with the kind of arrogance to offer complaint in light of our sin nature? That verse single-handedly silences me and humbles me. Now there's one last application here for our suffering. One more thing we can do. We silently wait. And you shoulder the weight in a humble state. Number four, investigate. Investigate. Verse 40. Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. The Hebrew word examine, chapas, means to search out. The Hebrew word probe, chakar, means to investigate. Chapas and chakar. And he's using those words because there is poetry there in the Hebrew. Search it out. Investigate our own hearts. Probe our ways. Rather than sitting there offering complaint to the Lord, probe yourself. Open up your own heart. And cry out, Lord, search me and try me. See if there's any wicked way in me. Investigate yourself. You know, Spencer was telling me on Wednesday night that when he was in Israel, he was shocked that he could not find a single church that offered communion every Sunday. And he said, you know, I came home and I find the same thing to be true. I don't know of any church other than the bridge And I don't say this to highlight us, because I do know there are some churches that offer communion every Sunday. But you know why we do it? We do it, A, number one, so that our focus is on Christ every single week. 
And we don't miss Him. We don't forget what He has done for us. But we also do it, as Paul says, to examine ourselves. To pause in the week and recognize our sin nature in light of His sacrifice. He would not have gone to the cross if all of us, and atheists as well, were just going to heaven anyway. And so we pause and we examine ourselves and we investigate our hearts and we probe where we are at. The Bible says, Psalm 4.4, Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Do you know, by the way, that you are in the faith? I hope you don't just show up at church and and think that because you go to church, you're in. Keith Green once said, going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Right? So going to church doesn't make you a... Oh, I'm I'm I'm, I'm with them. No. The question Jesus asks is, are you with me? And so we pause, we investigate, we test to see if we're in the faith, Paul says. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? You know what's marvelous about examining yourself when you suffer as a believer? You pull open your heart, you look inside, and guess who's there? He is. Jesus. And once again, we come to the nature of God. Grace, compassion, faithfulness. And He's right here. In our suffering, rather than crying out complaint to the Lord or looking for fast relief, with silence, with endurance, in humility, we investigate and we acknowledge the truth that we are sinners and He is Savior. It's a good place to be. It's what it's all about. In fact, that's it. It's returning the greatest result to any human suffering. And I say across the board, whether it's suffering caused by sin or suffering caused by satanic attack or suffering caused by the hand of Almighty God, the perfect result to any and all suffering is when it causes me to return to the Lord. When it draws me to Him. And you may say, well, Pastor Rick, I've returned already. I believe in Jesus with all my heart and I am still suffering. And I would say to you, wait silently, endure, be humble, investigate your own heart before the Lord. I shared a few quotes from C.S. Lewis from his book, A Grief Observed. It was not originally published under his name. It was published under the name of N.W. Clerk because Lewis didn't want people to know that he had written it. He wrote A Grief Observed, and we have A Grief Observed right now. (laughs) He wrote the book A Grief Observed. It was published, I believe I said earlier, in 1961. He began writing it in 1960 when his wife died. Now, you need to understand about Lewis, the greatest, I think, theological mind of the 20th century. C.S. Lewis had, back in 1940, published a consummate work on human suffering called The Problem of Pain. And in it, he talked about God's purposes for our pain, and how God worked through our pain, and how God used our pain, much of what we've talked about today. And it's great theology, and it's beautiful theory, and it's well-grounded in Scripture, and he wrote that work, and 21 years later, it didn't work for him when the theologian suddenly became the student of his own suffering. And if you've ever read A Grief Observed, this is a writing that is the stuff of experience. It is painful. It is 
naked. It is wide open. He he just lays out there his doubts. He lays out where he has no faith. He lays out his questions. It's a very painful writing. And he began, it got published because he began journaling after his wife, Joy Gresham, died. Joy Gresham, if you've ever seen the movie Shadowlands, one of the best movies I think Hollywood ever put out, starring Anthony Hopkins, you ought to see it if you haven't seen it. All about C.S. Lewis and Joy Gresham, this Oxford theologian and this New York Jew. And this proper man and this loudmouth. And they come together and he just he's intrigued by her because she just challenges him at every turn. And then she comes to him and she says, I, I really I have a need here for my son and I to be British citizens. And so C.S. Lewis, being a kind-hearted man, marries her out of convenience so she can get her citizenship. And lo and behold, in the process, he falls in love with her. And it's eye-opening for Lewis, who had been a bachelor his whole life. And she gets cancer. And the majority of their relationship is her cancer. And then she dies. And he suffers through this painful loss. And so A Grief Observed is his book in response to all of that. Toward the end of the book, he made this comment. He said, I thought I could describe a state... Make a map of sorrow. That would be the original work, The Problem of Pain. I thought I could make a map of sorrow. Sorrow, however, turns out not to be a state, but a process. He's right. If you suffer here for a while, if you have sorrow in this life, you know, this may sound odd, but thank God that He is taking you through the process. Because it's a process we all, I believe, must go through. It's a process that returns us to the Lord. And when you suffer, I I can't fairly or honestly give you any other answer than this. Apply His nature. Apply His nature to your wounds, to your pain. Return to the Lord. And as verse 41 says, we lift up our heart and hands toward God in heaven. Let's do that right now. Will you stand with me? There are all kinds of great rules in theology. When suffering strikes, most of those rules get thrown out the window. And truly, we're left with one reality, and that is God. Lord Jesus, I don't pretend to think that words in a sermon can offer the kind of balm or healing that you can. And so, Father, my prayer this morning is not that these words are heard so much as your nature is seen. Father, I pray that we will walk out of here simply with eyes on you, accepting and believing that you are a God of loving kindness. You are the God of all compassion. You are the God of faithfulness. We repeat these words again and again until they sink in and we believe them. And God of all grace and compassion, I know there are those suffering in this fellowship right now. I know there are those suffering from, from physical disease. I know there are those suffering from relational strife and marital discord. I know there are those suffering from doubts and confusion. I know there are those suffering from loss and from sorrow. Father, in all of this, 
would you give us grace to lift our eyes to you? To look to you? And Jesus, as you said, to repent, that is simply to return to our God and Father for all comfort and all peace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.